Okay, so hi everybody, and welcome to the 30th episode of Now and Men. I'm Stephen Burrell, and as always, I'm here with Sandy Ruxton. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. And yes, it's exciting to think we've now been running the podcast for around two years. So thank you so much to everyone who's been listening to us over this time. Yeah, and so to mark what is something of an anniversary for us, we have got a bit of a special episode today uh, with two guests. Um, They are Professor Sanjay Srivastava and Dr. Ramit Chowdhury. Uh, And they're two academics who have conducted fascinating research on issues of gender, cities, transport and mobility in India and beyond. And both of them have got uh, new books which have either come out recently or will be coming out soon on these issues. Yes, so Sanjay Srivastava is an anthropologist and British Academy Global Professor in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at SOAS, the University of London. He's also visiting research professor in the Department of Sociology at Srinadar University in the Delhi region. And his research interests include urban cultures, consumerism, middle class cultures, and the relationship between new forms of work and identity. And he's got a wide range of publications, but we'll concentrate today on his recent book, which is called Masculinity, Consumerism, and the Post-National Indian City. And it's published by Cambridge University Press last year. Yeah, and uh, Ramit Chowdhury is a senior lecturer in sociology at Erasmus University College in Rotterdam. His research interests are in urban studies, masculinity studies, ethnography, and literary theory. And he's got a book coming out in August with Rutgers University Press, which is called City of Men, Masculinities and Everyday Morality on Public Transport. His earlier research has explored masculinities in the context of men's rights movements, sexual violence, caregiving, and men doing feminist research and activism in India. Okay, so uh, hi both of you, and thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's lovely to have you with us. Hi, Stephen, Sandy, Romit. It's great to be here. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So, uh, Sanjay, maybe we can start by talking uh, to you about your book. Now, you you describe the city as a series of interconnected spaces, as I understand it. For example... Uh, home and street, family and public space, religious and non-religious context, and how these these all interrelate and influence the ways in which masculinity is lived. So perhaps you could explain why you focus on masculinity and the city. What, why is it and why is it important to study the different ways in which men, in particular, occupy and shape cities? Ah, uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, you know, uh, I guess. Uh, in, in all our social science humanities contexts, we come from traditions where the study of cities was about uh, the city as uh, as a, a series of spaces that was not necessarily explored in terms of gender at all historically. I mean, if you look at whether in the Indian context or the European context, even the classic studies of the cities um, are about just a person. Left Flaneur, for example, is a person. He's not a man, although of course we know he's a man. Um, and in the Indian context in particular, I was interested in, I come from both urban studies um, scholarship tradition, but also a gender studies scholarship tradition. So I was interested in bringing these two contexts together. Uh, um, and it's only recently that, you know, I think many like Romit and others have also begun to uh, think about the city as, uh, um, as spaces where men move in particular ways, shape cities in particular ways. Um, and I was also interested in because historically in the Indian context, um, Indian society was within anthropology certainly was about the village. You know that's where that the home was a village, mm. 
um, that's part of in most post-colonial societies in Africa and Asia. The city was always a place of great evil and where the, it was a village where the real tradition, real culture existed. So, and, and you went home to the village when in, in, in Indian cinema, you wanted to go home, you, might, you want to find the real India, you want to find the real Nigeria, you went back to your ethnicity, you went back to your village, to the small scale. And yet, historically, of course, we know that it is cities that people are moving to, um, men are moving to, women are moving to, and what is it doing to the city, to the city, to the place that was historically seen as, as ungendered, as offering freedoms to everyone, and yet we know that there is no such thing as an ungendered, any, there is no such thing as un ungendered social life. Um, so uh, that's one tradition that that uh, I think of myself belonging to and thinking about. And of course, um, the other one has to do with the fact that um, within urban studies, there's a kind of tradition of looking at cities as fragmented in different kind of ways. You know, to as 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 having a specific class here, a class a pretty different kind of class there, a ghetto here and a ghetto there, and yet. Uh, Anyone who works in any city um, uh, has a sense that uh, you know what happens in one part of the city. If a city, if if people who come to service your house, clean clean your house, they come from another part of the city. There are there are connections between different parts of the city. Eh? What happens to the clean spaces of the city always connected to the so-called unclean spaces of the city, right? So, so I was interested in thinking of the city not as a fragmented space but as a connected space. And what happens? How does one think of the city, any space? in order to think of social processes as connected as what I do having effect, having an effect on some other part of the city, uh, uh, rather than excusing myself from the scene of my research, as it were, because then I can say that, you know, the kind of research I do has nothing to do with the impact that I have, but it's, that's not true. And that's, I think that's true of anyone who works in the present. I mean, I think to some extent, historians are sometimes excused from that. Because uh, if you work in the present, there is no way that you can be excused from being a part of the problem. Mm. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why I was trying to think through the idea of the city is entangled, um, uh, you know, different kind of spaces connected. And then in that context, then, how do I think of the home, which might be, uh, which is historically been a space dominated by men? Um, in, if that is a private space, then how do I think of the entanglement between the private and the so-called public? You know, shopping malls, whatever, and how are the two connected? In and in as much as what happens at home, the kinds of relationships of power that are that exist in the home might also you might find also in 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 a, in a, in a public like a plaza or uh, uh, so. These are ways I was trying to think about it, and um, and you know it's not just true of Indian cities, but I think living in London, you can also see what happens and how different kinds of men relate to the city. In London, of course, what's interesting for me, how migrant men, for example, relate to the city, um, because now they're moving to a different part of the world where they are now slotted in London into the hierarchically, they're in a lower position than in their home countries. So how do they, how do they handle the city? So and do, do you want to say any more about masculinity within that? I mean, you've mentioned it, you know, uh, as part of your answer, but I'm sure there's quite a bit more to say about it as well. Yeah, well, I, I guess much more explicitly then you might say that um, historically, if you look at the, you look at the ex-colonial, post-colonial context, such as India, um, uh, the home was uh, somewhere where men went to preserve masculinity because the hard work of modernity was to be done in the office, 
in the public space. Uh, but in order to recuperate one's masculinity and keep it as it is, you went home because that's where it was properly preserved, it was properly respected. Um, and, and, and so there was always this tension between the city as so-called public and the home as a private and the relationship between them. So a really significant way in which the city, I think, comes to play a really significant part in defining masculinity is to be seen as a threat to masculinity, a constant threat to masculinity, because uh, there are multiple uh, uh, forces that come to play, that, that preyed on masculinity, um, the kind of forces that you were safe from at home. So, I, so interesting, I think, in, in, in different kinds of ways, in the Indian context, certainly, in many other contexts, this tension continues to exist, that cities are places where masculinities are threatened, and yet, it, uh, uh, and these are also spaces then people have to work out strategies for recuperating masculinity, for preserving masculinity, um, because, uh, after all, uh, the uh, uh, masculinity is not just a relationship between men and women, it's already been men and men, different kinds of men. So what kinds of men should occupy the public space in the city? Um, heterosexual men of a certain kind, white men, white-collar heterosexual men, uh, people in white-collar jobs, for example. Uh, so in different kinds of ways, cities continue to be really significant in as much as I think they continue to be seen as spaces that are natural to men, natural spaces, because of public spaces, and there's a historical connection between masculinity and publicness, but also threats to masculinity. Because now, of course, women of all of different kinds also wander around the city as, as in principle, as equals. What does that mean in terms of what does what does that do to space itself? And uh, given that in any space historically the idea was that there was to be a very specific relationship between men and women. I'm not going to say masculinity and femininity mm. because these are not equal and opposite categories, but between men and women. And so cities continue to be really interesting places where you can see um, performances of masculinity precisely because of the notion that masculinity is a really fragile thing. It does not take very much to threaten someone's masculinity. Otherwise, you wouldn't need so many rules and regulations telling you what masculinity is if it wasn't actually such a fragile thing. Um, the slightest provocation to masculinity, if someone overtakes your car, becomes a great offense to your masculinity. So cities continue to be really important because they are seen both as uh, the natural spaces of men, but also threats to masculinity. And so how does one deal with this tension? And that's why I think city is really interesting for me uh, in terms of masculinity mm. studies. Mm. Yeah, and the title of your book is Masculinity, Consumerism and the Post-National Indian City. And perhaps, um, you know, when you talk about consumerism, perhaps could this be considered one of the kind of threats to masculinity potentially that you, um, that you mentioned there? Um, because I think you talk about how there are these kind of masculine anxieties about like female consumption and 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 how that connects to women's increased presence in in public space. So yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about about that more and um, what are the kind of gender dynamics of consumerism in India? And could you perhaps also just say what you mean when you talk about this idea of the post-national city? Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I was I, I I'm I mean I'm interested in consumerism um, not as a as a threat. I mean historically all of us come from a certain kind of social science tradition where it's seen as consumerism has been seen as a as, as threatening some kind of authentic human existence. I mean that's that's a tradition certainly that I, I've been a part of a certain kind of broad left tradition. But I'm interested in 
what does how do people in a deeply asymmetrical society try and make their way through life and one of the things is through consumer cultures right uh, um, now the thing with consumerism is that in principle it offers the potential for everyone to consume men and women and yet in societies like india um, uh, to consume was to express a certain kind of autonomy because you're spending on yourself you're buying something for yourself you um and yet women were in other societies other points of time in certain indian society uh, as it continues to be the case were meant to be the sacrifices so you did not consume for yourself right you 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 allowed the men in the family to consume because they're the ones who are doing the hard work of earning a living being part of modernity etc etc and yet when con- high consumerism comes into into play into uh, uh, starts to happen uh capital allows everyone to everyone to be part of a principle and yet there's also that threat that everyone is a consumer women who are meant to be self sacrificing become not self sacrificing but self serving because they go to a shopping mall buy things for themselves then that in principle alters that relationship between men and women because after all women are not meant to be consumers they're meant to be sacrifices so it's that peculiar thing that consumerism uh allow uh, you know doesn't in principle prohibit anyone from consuming but also contains a threat to masculinity so how does that how does one contain that threat and i think the answer to that for me lies within consumerism so it, it both poses a threat but also provides the answer so the so one of the ways i explored this is to thinking about how in order to contain the threat to masculinity the consuming woman then becomes a moral consumer that is that she consumes but consumes within very specific guidelines that she's a consumer who then comes who then becomes part of public life which is the domain of men but also when required can come home to be the traditional woman to 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 look after children to look after her heart husband's partners needs etc etc so i was interested in the ways in which consumerism the dominant fact of our lives now um Uh, both poses a problem to masculinity but also allows as capital does to almost any any i think almost any problem in life in inverted commas an answer that you can be both uh, a consumer and put and in principle then a threat to masculinity but also how do you deal with, how do men deal with the threat is that they deal with it through allowing women and women becoming moral consumers following certain kinds of consumption so so for example you know if you look at women's many so called um, wedding magazines bridal magazines right and there the ideas about choice uh, how do you plan a wedding for example in india there are quite a few now and the idea of choice is never about spousal choice it's about the choice of goods and commodities that you have at your wedding because spousal choice allows you to move away from the restrictions of the family right so women can be consumers of goods and commodities but not other kinds of choices So I was interested in the way consumerism is the grounds for both an anxiety, but also the grounds of a certain kinds of answers uh, about to, to, to that anxiety. Uh, so, and one way in which you men, I think, are able to deal with that anxiety is the is the emergence of the woman as a moral consumer, uh, with certain uh, morality of consumption that you consume in particular kinds of ways that are part of you know, that 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 allow you to be both of the home. so the both of the world but also of the home that you you're not you're not always moving away from the home you come back home so so you know some of my work on gated communities for example uh you can see women in gated communities are taking part in uh 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 uh, uh 
you know, all kinds of, or let me give you another example just to end with, you know, I did some work on this um, very large temple complex in Delhi, which is like a Disneyland temple complex. Um, and it's based around ideas consumption with a very live cafe where people wear baseball caps with the um, logo of the temple uh, emblazoned on it. it uh, it's, a, it's a very, very big sect of Hinduism. In England, in fact, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a particularly prominent sect in, in, in England as well. Um, and what's particularly interesting is that you see lots of women, only women only, wandering around in this complex, which is a public space. Uh, but of course, they want, and, it, and it's a space of consumption, right? But they wander around as moral consumers. They're, they're, they're wandering around as consumers, but within a space of religion. So that they are, they are both of the world as consumers, but very much a part of tradition because they're in a religious space. If I could come in briefly here, I mean, as an interlocutor of Sanjay's work, I think something that I've found very, very valuable over the years is the sort of linkage and the kind of vocabulary that he gives us to explore the linkage between masculinity and pleasure uh, in the city. And pleasure in a sort of very broad sense, uh, of course, sexual uh, pleasure, but also erotic pleasure. And this this question, the link between pleasure and masculinity in city spaces, then in his work takes us to certain specific commodities like, say, footpath pornography. And then we are invited to look closely at the kinds of story worlds that exist in footpath pornography and what that tells us about what is desired, what is hindering the achievement of certain kinds of desires, but also into certain kinds of city spaces like, say, sex clinics. Uh, and what kinds of vernacular knowledges circulate in these sex clinics? What kinds of sexual performance problems are being uh, discussed in these spaces? What kind of solutions are being offered? Uh, so this sort of uh, conversation is something that I found very valuable in Sanjay's work. Could you could you explain what just uh, what is footpath pornography? That that isn't a term I'd come across before until I've read your work. So yeah, could you explain that? This is very cheap, badly produced, poorly produced uh, pornographic booklets. Um, mainly bought by relatively poor men, migrants to the city, uh, but they contain all kinds of things, um, advice on sexual performance, having sons, medical issues. So these are for, uh, mainly accessed by, but not exclusively, increasingly, I think, by people who may not have access to more formal circuits of knowledge or doctors. Uh, and they're very, very popular, and very cheap uh, to buy. And you can buy them everywhere, everywhere, very colorful, yeah, so. And you can buy them the footpath, and that's why. And around the railway stations, bus terminus, where people come into the city, go out of the city. Right. So people who are relatively at the bottom of the hierarchy, in the, in the hierarchy yeah. of the city. Yeah, and I mean, this makes me think about a topic which both of you have discussed, I think, in terms of like men's harassment um, of and abuse towards women, right? Which, which is something which is very pervasive in cities, in lots of different contexts, not least in, in public space. And, you know... Yeah, does that connect to, is that a part of the, a response to, to women's increased presence in public space? I mean, perhaps that's something maybe, could both of you just talk briefly about how that connects to your research? Because I know it's something you've done research on as well, isn't it, Romit, about, um, if, for example, on public transport. And we know there have been some really high profile, horrific cases of violence against women on public transport in India, for example, um, don't we? Um, yeah, do you have anything to say about how that connects with these issues of masculinity in the city? Uh, sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one immediate response that I can think of is that um, in Indian cities and perhaps even uh, further uh, afield, uh, also in European cities, I, I would say that men, are continu men continue to be seen as properly belonging to public spaces. 
and the appropriate space for women continue to be seen uh, as the home and the family. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is that the city is seen as a threat, uh, as a potential threat for masculinity, but it's also seen as the place where men can fully become men. It's also a place where men can achieve their masculinity largely through breadwinning. That the city provides them with employment opportunities in order for them to to, appro uh, to approximate the breadwinner ideal. So therefore, the women, the woman's presence in the city is often seen as a threat to that the achievement of masculinity through breadwinning. So I would say that that is one potential reason, um, you know, why a lot of men react with a great deal of aggression and rage uh, towards the presence of women in public. But uh, something that I found in my research, and I quickly want to flag that, is that uh, we typically think of the patriarchal city as expressing itself primarily through violence. And yes, that's certainly the case. And given the spectacular nature of certain kinds of violences, um, that's something that has occupied the public imagination. But I found that there's actually a lot of seemingly innocent interactions that happen between men and also between men and women uh, in Indian cities that prepare the ground, as it were, for more violent acts to be enacted. So what do I mean by this? Uh, many forms of male camaraderie joking relationships between men that sort of writes the city as a male space in which uh, women's presence becomes a bit of an anomaly. So certain kinds of, say, men joking about, uh, say, heterosexual desire, uh, joking about women passengers, the, their sexual appeal. Uh, this is something that's seemingly innocuous, that's seemingly uh, has nothing to do with violence, but I would say that this is one of the ways in which the city rights is written as a male space, which then then legitimizes more violent uh, acts to be performed against women and gender non-conforming people. Uh, maybe I could ask you a little bit more about your research, uh, Romit, because you, you were talking about it there. I mean, obviously, you've got your um, forthcoming monograph, City of Men, which is coming out. Um, and as I understand it, that's based around the lives of auto rickshaw drivers in, in Kolkata. Do you want to say a bit more about the context there? And, you know, what are what are their lives like? And, and you also talked a bit then, too, about um, threat, but also opportunity, I think. And you, you mentioned in your work, different themes or axes of um, uh, conflict, cooperation, though, and disappointment as, as key key themes arising. Do you want to say a bit more about the background to your work and, and how those themes come through? Certainly. I'd, uh, I'd say that the book is essentially about uh, two groups of transport workers in Calcutta. Uh, so one is the auto rickshaw drivers, and these are largely men who are from Calcutta, who have grown, uh, grown up in Calcutta, who've lived in Calcutta over multiple generations. And the other group of transport workers that I look at are taxi drivers, and they are largely migrants from poorer states uh, in the eastern part of the country. Um, so I look at the, their interactions uh, both among each other uh, but also with traffic police and passengers and how these two very different groups of men, they're all working class, they're all men, but some are migrants, some are seen as local, uh, how they really experience the city and what that then can tell us a bit more generally about how the city becomes a patriarchal space. Uh, so that's essentially the, what the project uh, is about. And uh, my rationale for picking this or designing it in this way is that uh, mobility is often seen as um, a masculine privilege or a masculine attribute. Uh, men have the freedom to move. Uh, 
and women are typically tied to space and they are associated with stasis. So I was interested to explore uh, looking at really very mundane experiences of men. How do they experience mobility in the city? Do they see it as a freedom? In which conditions uh, is it experienced as freedom? Uh, can mobility be imposed? If so, how, how, how is that imposition experienced by men? Uh, this is something that uh, I explore in the book. And another reason uh, is that in recent, I, I would say since yeah, December 2012, I would say, um, a lot of public discussions around middle class women's safety in Indian cities has been framed around working class men, often working class men who are facilitators of mobility in the city, like auto drivers, bus drivers, taxi drivers. The principal threat of middle class women's safety in the city is seen as coming from these working class men. So I wanted to explore how they experience this kind of portrayal, uh, how do they experience uh, masculinity in the city, how do they experience also women's femininity in the city. So the project really is built around these questions. The research you've done, Ramit, is fascinating and I love the um, the methodology you used um, because you talk about how these, these men who are driving these auto rickshaws, um, they're often working excruciatingly long hours, you know, they're often maybe only getting one day off a week at most and so often I, I think did you have to carry out the interviews like with them while you were like on the move and making ethnographic notes and things like whilst a passenger in one of the auto rickshaws and so yeah what was that experience like for you like how did that go as a as a research method and yeah did any particularly interesting experiences come up in the process of doing that uh, for you oh yeah absolutely right uh, you know that's exactly how I had to do the do the research uh, I, I basically traveled along with these uh, auto rickshaw drivers to drivers as passengers and began a conversation with them about their lives. Somewhere down the line, I told them that I'm writing a book about their, about the lives of public transport workers in Calcutta and if they would be interested to speak to me in a slightly more, you know, in slightly more formal, regimented way. Uh, but as you said, I mean, these men work excruciatingly long hours. So for the most part, it wasn't really possible to schedule an interview. So for the most part, I had to simply travel along with them and and talk to them as they worked. Uh, so in a way, it made the research a bit difficult in the sense that, uh, you know, one couldn't really say go to a cafe and sit and, and, and go through a, a, a sort of a list of questions in a very systematic way. But it also had certain benefits. So for instance, say I was sitting next to an auto rickshaw driver and talking to him, chatting with him while he was driving. But what this did was that uh, he would also say we were crossing through, passing through a particular neighborhood. And he would remember that, you know, this is something that happened in, in that spot. And he would tell me an anecdote. Uh, so that, so in a, in a very normal, natural way, certain spaces along our route served as pegs for memory. And this is something that I describe in the book, uh, in, especially with the auto rickshaw in Calcutta, there are many spaces of sociability that uh, surround this street. So there are certain neighborhood tea kiosks from in auto rickshaw depots, where a lot of people congregate, primarily men, but also some women. So it was, uh, again, you know, as a, uh, as a cisgender male, Bengali male, it was very easy for me to be, to become a part of that space uh, as a passenger and really talk to them, chat with them, uh, get a sense of, you know, what their lives uh, are about. So, yeah, uh, the fieldwork experience was definitely very interesting. And I also interviewed traffic uh, police officers. And uh, that was 
a little tricky. Um, none of them agreed to speak to me, uh, you know, on record. Uh, but again, uh, I, I spoke to them while they were manning traffic in crazy, noisy, busy uh, Indian uh, streets. Uh, and again, that came with its benefits as well, uh, because I didn't insist on recording uh, the interview. They told me things that they probably would have felt a lot more hesitant to say um, if they knew that this uh, their voices are being recorded. You mentioned um, the, the relations between the rickshaw drivers and police. They were, they were ones of, I think you called it, um, homosocial trust. Do you want to say a bit more about that phrase? I mean, I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but... Perhaps you'd want to expand on it. Sure, certainly. Uh, you know, what, something that I noticed uh, was that, I mean, typically uh, the relationship between police and, uh, say, marginalized urban groups is framed through a language of conflict. And much of this is true. Uh, we know that the, the police is discriminatory in, in many ways. Uh, it's racist, it's, uh, uh, in many ways, it's, it's casteist, it's uh, Islamophobic, so on and so forth. Uh, but this... Uh, this relationship of conflict really coexists with a lot of everyday mundane forms of cooperation. And I wanted to shed uh, light a bit, uh, some light on these mundane acts of cooperation. So to give you a, a concrete example, um, again, you know, as I was doing fieldwork one afternoon, I was traveling uh, on an auto rickshaw. Uh, the auto rickshaw was waiting at a major thoroughfare uh, for more passengers. And the traffic uh, police intercepted and, and uh, told this, this auto rickshaw driver that, uh, look, you shouldn't be waiting here uh, and I should be fining you for, for waiting in this spot uh, unlawfully. And, and I noticed then that there's a certain kind of humor that, uh, that emerged in, in that inter brief interaction between the auto rickshaw driver and the traffic police. The auto rickshaw driver started telling the, uh, the, police, uh, the policeman that, sir, please don't fine me today because I've promised my wife to take her to, to watch a film. And if you find me, I won't have the disposable income to take uh, take her to the movies. And you're a married man yourself. You know how you know what kinds of troubles one has to encounter if one doesn't keep a promise to one's wife. Um, and the tra the traffic police uh, also the policeman he also bursts out into laugh into laughter. And and he's like, okay, fine, you know, I'll let you go this time, but make sure that you don't commit this kind of an offense in the future. So these kinds of you know, everyday camaraderie. Um, our moments provide moments of joy. They also provide avenues for marginalized groups of men uh, to gain access to the city, to speak back to the, the work of law in the city. Uh, but they also script the city as a male space. Uh, for instance, again, I participated in, in, in a lot of workshops for safe driving practices that, again, traffic police were uh, facilitating. And there also certain uh, expressions of male heterosexual desire were normalized. Uh, so, uh, for instance, um, um, say a facilitator, a traffic police, uh, a traffic policeman would say that, yes, we all know that you love to take uh, good looking women uh, passengers. Uh, you love to uh, smell their hair and, uh, you know, their perfume as they travel uh, alongside you uh, on these uh, shared modes of transport. And that's all very good. But make sure that you're driving safely. So again, how something like uh, safe navigation of the city is being tied to the performance of male heterosexual desire. Right. And you've, I mean, you mentioned earlier again that you've focused in particular on working class masculinity within your work and how, you know, men in that group um, struggle to accomplish 
you know, the norm of respectable breadwinner masculinity, if you like, but also you know other other expressions of masculinity come up, so risk taking, mastery over space, male camaraderie, uh, and all that as well. Um, and I think you you characterise uh, this as a tension between attempts to have have find joy in everyday living and whilst fighting to survive in the city, and that struck me as as quite an interesting tension. And I wondered whether um, you wanted to explain that conclusion and also does it resonate with work you've carried out in other cities with urban poor I mean I know you've undertaken research in Tokyo in Mumbai in Manila um, there's two questions in there sorry <laughs> right uh, yeah I mean I think the question of disappointment is something that really uh, recurred in my interactions with uh, with auto rickshaw drivers with taxi uh, with taxi drivers they repeatedly registered a great sense of disappointment in the city and one of the ways that this uh, expressed expressed itself is their relation is their reaction to urban infrastructure. We know that Indian cities uh, post 1990s have changed uh, rapidly and vastly. Uh, the infrastructural space of these uh, of Indian cities have, has changed tremendously, visibly. There are flyovers, shopping malls, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but this group of laborers in the city uh, really registered. A kind of indifference to this kind of changing infrastructural landscape. They said, sure, the city has changed visibly, but it hasn't really changed my life in any way. My father struggled to provide for his family, and I have the same struggle. And this really indicates the great extent of the tremendous influence of uh, the male breadwinner ideology on how men experience the city. That even though visibly, the city has virtually cities have virtually become unrecognizable. Still, this change in the infrastructure landscape has no meaning to these men simply because they are not able to provide adequately for their family. Their struggles to do that remains the same, and that's something that really tells you about the influence of family life on men's public lives. And this is again something that connects to uh, Sanjay's work on entangled spaces, that you can't really understand the public if you don't understand the private. And similarly, you don't understand uh, family life if you're not uh, understanding the impact of the city on it. Um, and in terms of everyday joy, I think one uh, example that I encountered uh, in my research is uh, even though these are public vehicles, taxi, um, the taxi and the auto rickshaw driver, often men, drivers of these vehicles, would use, the, use these vehicles as, as opportunities for leisure. So two auto rickshaws might be racing, uh, even though they are very much ferrying passengers. Uh, they might race against each other and try to outdo each other. And this, again, connects to how historically uh, working class men, especially, but also middle class uh, men have used public spaces of the city as, as spaces of leisure and even, and even as a kind of impromptu sporting arena. So you have a lot of working class men, also middle class men. Even when I was growing up, we were playing cricket uh, on, on the street, on interior lanes uh, of the street, because we didn't have access to formal playgrounds, uh, sporting facilities, so on and so forth. But as the city is recoiling, especially from the reach of working class men, uh, working class men's right to the city is repeatedly being questioned. Uh, it's being disavowed. Uh, this is one of the ways in which working class men claim a right to the city by treating, continuing to treat it as a kind of sporting arena, by making use of, say, a public vehicle as an opportunity for leisure and sport. And, and did you have any reflections on, on uh, experience elsewhere that had come up in your research and what, what the differences were? I mean, obviously, you know, you oh, well, have to I keep it brief because we don't have a huge amount of time, but... Um... Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think you know one uh, one commonality uh, that I've noticed in my research in say in urban India in Calcutta specifically and in a place like Tokyo is the influence of the nation and maybe this is something that can uh, connect to Sanjay's work on the post-national city. Uh, uh, I mean, I found that the I- national ideas of gender. The national ideals of gender, of masculinity and femininity, have a huge influence on how people are experiencing mobility in the city. So, for instance, a lot of Japanese women told me that one of the reasons why they can't complain against instances of sexual assault on Tokyo's densely packed commuter trains is that norms of Japanese, idealized norms of Japanese femininity uh, disallow them from protesting. So the the good Japanese woman is someone who endures hardship without complaining. So this norm of Japanese femininity, idealized norm of Japanese femininity, uh, creates an influence on on Japanese com- women commuters. So they say that even if we are being assaulted, we don't complain because culturally we have no space to do that. We are supposed to endure hardship. So in a similar way. Uh, who is seen as deserving of protection in Indian cities, uh, which woman is seen as deserving of protection and which woman is seen as uh, uh, not deserving of protection is also connected to ideas of idealized uh, norms of Indian femininity. So the good Indian woman becomes a sort of, uh, you know, guiding uh, as as a kind of lodestar, as it were, to decide who deserves protection and who, who and violence against who is even justified. It's interesting you brought in the the notion of national um, discourses around masculinity because, I mean, just moving to Sanjay for a moment, I mean, I I noticed that you used in your work the term Modi masculinity uh, to describe the media image that's been crafted by and around the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, Do you want to say something about the characteristics of Modi masculinity? Perhaps you both might want to comment on that as well. Yeah, I, I'll preface that by um, answering a question which I didn't I didn't properly address when Stephen sure, was asking, sure. which is that post-nationalism, what I meant by post-nationalism, of course, as Roman said, nationalism continues to be important, but in different ways. It's not the nationalism of the 1950s, an immediate post-colonial sort of anti-colonial nationalism. I think it's something different. And the difference is that now nationalism can be found anywhere, whereas earlier the sites of nationalism were much more specific. Uh, much more territorialized, um, whereas I think one is uh, uh, the sites of nationalism are deterritorialized. So Indians can be uh, genuinely Indian living in Germany and the UK, but earlier you could only be genuinely Indian if you lived in India, because you could then you can maintain a certain kind of Indianness in any part of the world. Um, so nas- the, by post-nationalism, I meant a move to uh, as context where nationalism become much has become much more strongly linked with both globalization, so it's become deterritorialized, and consumer culture. Uh, and that's where I think um, uh, uh, Modi comes in, because he's someone, it seems to me, who, who allows both an attention to the nation as something quite specific, but also he's, he's, he, he doesn't say you can't have global consumerism. Because he doesn't say that globalism undermines the nation, because that's not a part of, obviously, contemporary capital. Everyone wants more fridges, everyone wants more cars, etc. So Modi is the father who allows you to both maintain control over the house, over the domestic, by saying Indian traditions are important. This is what men should do. Uh, Young women should, you know, uh, 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 defer to their parents or fathers in particular. But at the same time, Modi is also the father who says, it is all right to be a consumer. 
Whereas in earlier, under the what you might call Nehruvian kind of uh, uh, Indian modernity, it was very much a father figure who was anti-consumerist. And that's been the big shift. And I think that's where it seems to me Modi's success lies. He is both the father who is the father and says a particular kind of masculine fatherhood, masculinity in fatherhood is important, but also he's the father who says you can also have the world. How do you have the world? By, for example, women can consume, but they must also be moral consumers. So he's that kind of global national father. And I think that's where, because that's where I think success lies because, mm. you know, consumerism, globalization generates certain kind of anxieties about losing one's men's place in the world. The home becomes much more destabilized. Women might go out to shopping malls. They might have daughters, might have girlfriends. And yet Modi allows, I think, and yet no one does not want to have consumerism. Right? People want to travel over the world. People want more fridges, etc., etc. So how do you balance this? And I think Modi is that figure, and I think his popularity lies is that he's that father figure, who is a father figure, who says you can have both the world, but also as men continue to have control over the home. And that's where I think his success lies. And, and that's the kind of um, figure that he represents and is widely successful because he provides both the access to consumerism, which is, poses a certain kind of problem to masculinity, but Modi also provides the answer to that, that you, if you have women consuming in these moral ways, coming home, uh, then you can have both. You can have both control of the home, but you can also access the world. But he's, he's also in the tradition of sort of strong leadership as exemplified by, by Trump, by Bolsonaro and so on, but, but quite different, no? Indeed, I agree. I mean, Trump is a, of course, I mean, I mean uh, Trump is a, he's a, he's, he's a liberty uh, mm. uh, in, in, the, in the way that Modi is not. Um, uh, Trump is not a social conservative. He's a political conservative in many ways, mm. in a way that Modi is both a social conservative, but also a political conservative. He's politically conservative. Uh, he's, uh, Trump is not in the same way, I think, interested in saying the kind of things that Modi has to say to his audience, but his audience is quite different. Um, the kind of appeals to tradition that Modi makes that he has to make by saying that I can give you both, I can give you the world, but simultaneously if you not control, lose control over the home. And that's very significant for the Indian context, given the kind of things, in fact, uh, Romit was just talking about the important tradition and nation. How do you continue to be a nationalist figure at a time that you are also very much a part of uh, 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 someone who promotes uh, globalism, globalization, global capital, uh, public-private partnerships, etc., etc. How do you balance the two? Mm. I think, as I said, I think consumerism provides the answer as well as the problem. So, and Modi is someone who has managed that. But I think managers specifically, and his success lies because of his prime identification as a man, not just as a politician, but as a male politician of a certain kind. It would not work, I think, if it was a woman politician. It's his masculinity at a particular time that allows him to offer it as a solution uh, to certain sets of circumstances that we all want to be part of, and yet we as men might be threatened by. Mm -hmm. Ramit, I'm, I'm not sure if you have to leave. Um, I do. You do uh, have to leave. Yes, right? I do have to leave. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to speak to you again in due course, and we'll continue talking to Sanjay. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah thanks Thank you. Bye. Yeah, San Sanjay, one thing I, I wanted to ask you as well, connected to some of the things you were just saying, um, 
you know, you make reference to like the ways in which different groups of men, um, so for example, nationalist leaders or marginalized men or men as consumers or as heads of the family um, or those who belong to kind of Hindu fundamentalist organizations, the different ways in which they might make and unmake masculine cultures in the city. And obviously, like, there's a lot of complex issues facing each of those groups. But yeah, could you perhaps just comment briefly on on how you identify these different forms of masculinity which are which are going on in 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 the city? But I think in the Indian context, and I think also in some other parts of the world, for example, I think there's a specific way in which Muslim masculinity has been constructed by Hindus uh, as as a man who's a threat to Hindu masculinity. Um, uh, so in the politics of religion in India, for example, Muslim masculinity is constructed. Um, as a specific threat to the nation because the Muslim man has the capacity to lure Hindu women away and through the term that's used in India as love jihad by Hindu, many Hindu right-wing organizations, that what Muslim men are doing are seducing Hindu men and in turn then reducing the Hindu population and in effect, of course, emasculating Hindu men through their capacity, through some mysterious capacity to, to seduce Hindu men. And the term which has very been very popular over the last maybe a decade is love jihad, of course, which borrows from the global discourse, American discourse of jihad in general. Uh, so the Muslim men continue, uh, continue, uh, have come to be constructed as dangerous, as risky, um, as mysterious, um, and hence uh, something that needs to be addressed very specifically. So love jihad has become a very big term specifically to target Muslim men. Um, if I if I move to the, how caste has historically been used, you know, in a lot of Indian popular culture, if you look at old films, um, the hero was always, and this always, when you compare it to say a film Hollywood cinema, the hero in the Indian older Indian film was always like a almost a fat figure, if I've used them, a roundish figure. He was never muscular, um, and I think that has to do with the fact that specific ways in the Indian context caste is linked to masculinity. So to be a well-rounded figure, not a muscular figure, figure meant that you were effective an upper caste man. Who else would be muscular but a working class man? Right? So in different kinds of ways, historically in the Indian context, um, uh, there's been a very specific connection with religion and caste, for example. So um, now you have a lot of uh, 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 all kinds of men in relation of caste are muscular. Uh, that has to do with the introduction of a global consumer culture and the cultures of bodybuilding and, and going to the gym. Yeah, and that again has to do with ideas of class. So the different ways in which religion, caste and class have come to be specifically linked um, to masculinity and caste is particularly important. Uh, masculinity and caste are also very important in as much as in many caste conflicts in India, upper caste men will often target the women of non-upper caste communities, specifically in order to demonstrate the so apparent emasculation of their men, that they can do anything to the women and the men will not, are not able to, as it were, in inverted commas, protect uh, non-upper caste men, Dalit men are not able to protect their women. So the different ways in which in the Indian context, uh, in popular culture, in everyday life, um, in the way the politics plays out at present, caste, class and religion are really significant in which masculinity gets defined. Um, and of course, in public spaces, uh, the, the power to be, to, uh, to, to, power to be, to completely be a man 
um, continues to belong, of course, to the dominant groups in India, which are upper caste men, upper, Hindu upper caste men, I should say, which brings together uh, Hindu. Uh, I'll go one step further to bring in the other thing, but she's been important. Hindu upper caste, perhaps professional men, men of professional background. So bringing together caste, class, religion, you know, it operates different ways, of course, for different societies. But I think this is how it might operate for the Indian Indian context. Mm. Well, I suppose I, I mean, one thing I was wondering, um, obviously we didn't get a chance to ask Romit this as well, but, but we do always like to kind of um, to ask our guests, you know, a, a more a, a question about the personal side of, of this work as well. Um, so, I mean, one thing I was wondering was perhaps if you could just tell us a bit more about how how you ended up getting involved in research on gender and pro-feminism and men and masculinities in the first place um, and what led you to then, you know, apply that lens to the city and um, to urban life. Yeah. Well, my first work my was on a school, a boarding school, what in England is called a public school, like a boarding school. And, and so I became interested in how mm-hmm. middle class masculinity were constructed as a particular site. But before that, I should say, I mean, I guess much on a much more personal level, and I did economics on my bachelor's and my MA degree. And I think it was a great disappointment to my parents, not so much, but to my grandparents. Because, um, in the sense that um, most people of my background in India, most men would be would do science or a medical degree or technology degree. But economics was kind of all right because it still has maths, the kind of economics that I did. But when I switched to uh, doing anthropology, I think that was a greater blow, certainly to even to my grandparents, because anthropology and sociology were disciplines that history only in a, that women did these kinds of subjects. Um, uh, and economics is all right because at least it had maths and you did microeconomics and microeconomics and econometrics. Um, so when I moved into doing anthropology and sociology for a certain set of reasons, um, I, I, I became much more interested in the, of course, the gendered nature of knowledge and, of course, gender in general. And I should also say that I guess a lot of this research also comes from the fact that one has uh, 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 many women friends and you learn from them. Um, I have to say, when I started off, when I came from economics to anthropology, I mean, I, you know, it was something that interested me. But as someone who was an economist, I certainly didn't think I had much to learn from anyone who was not an economist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, uh, but uh, uh, friendship with lots of women has certainly been really important in terms of how one does this research. Um, my first bit of research, which was at a boys' school, also introduced me to the possibilities of looking at masculinity as a specific way of understanding life. Um, and so and these are, I think these are some of the ways in which, which have led me to this field. And also I think masculinity is also, as I said, it's not just about men and women, it's also about men and men, different kinds of men. And that's what I think masculinity studies also allows you to understand um, as to how does one understand relationships between men and men, about friendships, for example, the possibilities of friendships and the constraints to friendships that one is one is socialized into, um, which I think just allows me to think, to allows me to link what I do as a researcher also to to to, to my personal life. I mean, which is not to say that it, you become some kind of a, a utopian feminist figure, uh, but that you certainly are allowed to think about life in a way that I don't. If I had not done anthropology, if I had not done the research I do, I would not have been able to think about life and, uh, in different ways. So I think it 
allows me to connect different aspects of one what one does and as an academic but also as a person outside academia just as a person uh, and, and and that's why the research continues to be of interest to me on different levels i i i had one one last question i was just wondering um like do you find it difficult doing your research you know i mean you know because you're it, you're taking quite a critical approach really aren't you and you're looking at issues like masculinity which people can find quite confronting like so do you, i know you don't live in india but i mean do you get much pushback on your research and and i suppose the flip side of that do you see much hope for change you know in positive directions on um on the issues you're working on i think there's pushback now um because clearly if you're going to work on masculinity you are addressing really fundamental aspects of what are seen as indianness uh, uh, as it would be in many societies um so i think it's very difficult to do certain kinds of research uh in, in india uh, because masculinity uh, most of us who work on masculinity don't just work on masculinity it axiomatically connects to religion and, and then of course that connects to what is now in the present environment seen as fundamental to indian identity a uh, certain kind of religious identity so these are all linked so it's it's i think it's difficult more difficult now but the at the other uh, in the other context i mean it's impossible to predict i mean capital uh, which i now see as a dominant mode in terms of how the world operates um is not particularly interesting in your ideologies i mean if there's if there's money to be made in having a more gender equal society and that's what will happen so i i can't say i mean i, I, I even uh, so you do have more and more so shopping malls for example in india i mean and there's been a lot of critical writing i'm not particularly critical of them i'm interested in the politics of consumerism i find lots of shopping malls allow young couples to meet who otherwise would not be able to meet there elsewhere so i i don't really have a in many ways because i think um, of the current political environment it's very difficult to do certain kinds of work i've become increasingly open to now thinking about what is possible what happens in these spaces i don't automatically say look i think of course i think shopping malls are bad from an environmental point of view but what happens in a deeply asymmetrical society what are the spaces where people who have no other capacity to access uh, structures of power where do they go what do they do and what's the minute so I, in a sense i'm not really interested in revolution i have to say what is a minute incremental step up that someone can get that allows them to access something else um you know i did some work on a in a cabin crew training you know where people do etiquette training and people from really poor backgrounds come there and try and learn certain ways of recognizing red wine and white wine and croissant and and some ways many anthropologists i would have said when you go this is like like inauthentic inauthentic culture but what is it to me if someone learns in 6 months what all these terms are and gets a job in an in an airline and moves up social and that's what happens right so so because i think the current situation is very difficult it is become very difficult I see some possibilities in those in those contexts where 10 years 15 years ago I would not have addressed myself to these contexts because I kind of say well who am I to say that these people are gathering in inauthentic <laughs> culture unlike me who has certain kind of education has come from middle class background well maybe this is what happens this is what how the world changed I don't know I mean, that's what oh, well it's been so interesting Sanjay I, I didn't have any more questions unless you did Sandy no I just think I wanted to say thank you really for thank for coming much. on and you know thank <laughs> giving you such an interesting insight into um thank you city life 
Thanks yeah. to both of you. It was good. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It was talking. our pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, Sandy, that was our first attempt at interviewing um, two people simultaneously, and it was very interesting. What did you make of the conversation? Yeah, no, it was, it was really good, actually. And uh, uh, I was interested. I think both of them mentioned the notion of threat, mm. and they weren't talking about um, threat in the city in relation to violence against women so much, but more about uh, the city as, as somehow a site of threat to masculine identity in various mm. ways. Yeah, you know, the notion of, of being a breadwinner and mm. how you're going to, you know, struggle to, to make a livelihood and so on. Mm. But also, I mean, Roman was talking about the relations between auto rickshaw drivers and the sort of camaraderie between them, the risk taking, mm. the the racing that they engage in, that sort of thing, you know. Um, so mixture of threat and joy and pleasure pleasure seeking i suppose and I, I thought that was that was interesting because living here i i don't tend to think about cities in that way mm. although obviously mm. they have those components to them you know i mean I, I would uh if i thought about the notion of threat i'd think about women's safety primarily mm. um and i guess the the pleasure seeking bit was interesting as well because that's mm. that's uh, shot through with some tensions, isn't it? I mean, I, I see, you know, young guys uh, driving around at high speed, competing with each other, having fun on our streets. And basically, they may be having fun, but they're putting at risk pedestrians, mm. cyclists, and other people. You know, so their pleasure seeking actually impinges on others. So um, maybe these things are, uh, you know, very culturally specific mm. but um but i mm. found that uh interesting concept to juggle mm. with anyway it made me th it's making me think yeah. so how about you yeah well i i am aware of there being some interesting research in the uk about like joyriding for example and um and that's quite interesting isn't it because i suppose that kind of activity can be a way for like perhaps especially for like young working class men who don't have other ways necessarily which are seen as being more legitimate by society of of having fun and finding joy and and expressing their or enacting their kind of masculinity um and and those can be quite thrill-seeking risk-taking ways of doing that in a bit similar to how Romit talks about with these auto rickshaw drivers uh, but at the same time it does still express a degree of like male entitlement to that space in a way doesn't it of like well it's it's my space as a man i'm gonna assert my kind of power over that space um, and prove my masculinity in that way, in ways which you don't see women doing to the same extent. And and obviously violence against women itself in the city, in public spaces, is obviously still, you know, rife in India, in the UK, in, in cities across the world. And I suppose perhaps often that can be seen, isn't it, as a perhaps a way of trying to assert male dominance over that space. Um, I mean, I was, um, I wanted to bring it up, but there wasn't time. That horrific case um, in 2012, the, the murder of a young woman called Jyoti Singh in India, horrific um, case on a bus. And um, I think that brought up real massive conversations there about violence against women. As we know in the UK from recent years as well of, um, of, of high profile cases of, of violence against women in public space. Um, yeah, but did anything else just, um, come up for you? Well, I, I was just thinking about your point about um, so-called joyriding as well. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I live here in Oxford, as listeners will know, and actually joyriding was a real big thing 
Hmm. possibly about 20 years ago you know and I, I used to literally lie there at night and hear the squeal of wheels with these young men driving around very fast <laughs> around some of the estates um but the thing i was going to mention in relation to it was that some people put it down to a connection with the decline of the the car plant hmm. you know that they that um actually some of the more sort of traditional employment routes were being hmm. closed down um, and that there was somehow some link with the activities of, of young men as a result of that. But there is something interesting about the link between the sort of pleasure-seeking and the breadwinning, I suppose, yeah. uh, or, the, or the thwarted ambition of, of breadwinning. Yeah, because yeah, Romit, I mean, I would really recommend people read Romit's research if you get a chance, perhaps when his book comes out, because the, the research he did with these auto rickshaw drivers was so fascinating, not, not just at least how he did it, um, but also, yeah, just like their lives sounding like, you know, just working all hours that they can, like driving these vehicles all around the city and must be incredibly difficult, hard work and like the kind of class dynamics of the people they're driving around, perhaps often being quite middle class. Um, but also, yeah, trying to find fun where they could along the way, you know, <laughs> and given that they were pretty much working or waking out as, you know, yeah, doing that while on the job by like speeding past other drivers. And um, but yeah, that's, which is kind of there's something quite endearing about that, isn't there? But at the same time, there mm. is also elements of danger and entitlement. Yeah. And like how safe women felt in those environments, for example, whether as passengers or as uh, pedestrians or. Um... Mm. Yeah. I mean, I have been the back of a tuk-tuk in oh, Delhi. Oh. Yeah, I went to Delhi once for um, Men Engage Global Forum. Yeah, you'd be driving around. I mean, it was, it was actually great. It was great fun, you know. <laughs> um, there was a sort of sociability about it yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and a joshing, which was which was very, very amusing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the other thing that occurs to me, which, again, we, we didn't really have time for, mm. was, you know, the connection between transport and environment and climate yeah. issues. And, you know, a lot of those rickshaws, I mean, I think they're trying to change them, but, you know, a lot of them are petrol, diesel, whatever. Um, and levels of pollution, not just mm. from those vehicles, but from all vehicles, uh, in somewhere like Delhi is absolutely horrendous. And uh, you could really feel that in your throat, you know, mm. when you were there um, mm. in, in a big way. Having said that, I mean, I think there's, I think I'm right in saying there's about five Indian cities that are part of the sort of C40 cities. Right. You know, and, and this is all about cities taking action to uh, mm. to meet the sort of, well, <laughs> the Paris 1.5 target, mm. you know, and um, mm. mobilise all actors in order to achieve mm. that. Uh, and actually, some of the Indian cities, I think, are, are making progress. So right. Kolkata, mm. which is where Romit was doing yeah. his research, I mean, they, they, I think, have been introducing electric buses, right. you know, so that there is... Mm some progress yeah well um, and thinking about mm. like how can we embrace more sustainable forms of transport and there are very gender dynamics there aren't there i mean i i, I think women are more likely to here in the uk at least to take certain forms of public transport and they're like buses and things but if we want to encourage more use of public transport are we thinking about like how different people f feel comfortable and safe using these different forms of mm. transport and um or vice versa like how it might be particularly difficult to encourage men to get out of their cars, which are often seen as being this real masculine status symbol, aren't they? And, and embrace a more collective mm. form of travel. Um, so yeah, there's so many interesting issues to consider there, aren't there? But, but, but for now, um, Sandy, thank you very much as always for that. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners uh, for staying with us for 30 episodes. And if you haven't listened to all 30 yet, then make sure you go back and go through the whole back catalogue when you get a chance. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and um, yes, we shall speak to you again soon. Yep. Speak soon. Yes, and um, as always, do subscribe if you haven't done so already. Contact us at nowmen at gmail.com. Share the podcast with your friends and family and colleagues and so on. And um, yeah, take care. Thank you very much. <laughs>